Hi, I'm Chuck Quinley, and welcome to Thread, episode 121. Thread, God's truth tying together all the pieces of your life. Thread is the broadcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. Thread. Welcome to the Thread Podcast. This is a podcast for believers who want to increase the level of impact that their lives have on others. Whether you're seeking to have influence in your family, at work, in school, or as a leader of a ministry or nonprofit, Thread is for you. It's a verse-by-verse Bible study, and my goal is to set before you a solid meal from God's Word so you'll have the strength you need for your calling as an agent of change. And I think you're going to find this episode of Thread to be particularly meaningful, especially if you're a leader of a family, church, or organization. Because today's thread is about the secret sufferings most leaders endure in the course of their lifetime of ministry. And I know what I'm talking about here. Actually, as I tried to get started in writing the notes for this thread, my mind kept taking off down dark paths of memory where I've been insulted and attacked because of the ministry. I've had people target our leadership circle and try to draw them apart. I've had lies spread about me to try to discredit my leadership. Now, I heard others say this when I was younger, and um, I thought they must just be rough on people so nobody likes them. But now I've lived as 30 years in the role of a leader, and I can tell you that no matter how careful you are as a leader, you're going to have some secret sufferings growing out of conflict. Now, I say secret suffering because I'm assuming you're a noble leader, who doesn't escalate interpersonal conflicts and, you know, to draw others into it and turn it into this big open battle. I've seen way too much of that also. But, you know, I think great leaders keep much of their pain hidden just so it doesn't grab the attention and and take the spotlight away from the mission you're trying to accomplish. You know, you don't want to give it more more platform than it than it wants. It's you know it's craving to derail everything you do and stop you from your calling and and turn your thoughts aside and get you all focused on these problems. And I think a, a mature leader just refuses to allow that to happen, and they deal with it. You know, you do what you can. You try to minimize it. You try to negotiate it if you can. You navigate around it. You try to keep it from blazing up. But you often have these little attacks happening, sometimes big attacks. They happen from the side or from the back as you keep your team moving forward. So I think we all need to, to think about this and not be surprised when this happens to us. Now, see, it would be very easy. We're in Acts chapter 19. It would be very easy to look at Paul's success at Ephesus and think he just had smooth sailing for two years because his numbers for growth were so impressive. But Paul's letters reveal a hidden inside story about his time as the leader of the church at Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul says, I fought wild beasts at Ephesus. 2 Corinthians 1, 8, he says that he and his team lived under, quote, great pressure and far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired of life itself, end quote. In Romans 16.3, Paul says that Priscilla and Aquila, who were from Ephesus, had to risk their very lives for him. And now here in Acts 
20, that's our next chapter, verse 19, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders, quote, I serve the Lord among you with many tears and trials by the plotting of the Jews. And this is all just part of a thing called resistance. And, you know, anytime you go to do something for the Lord, especially, I think, if it involves the creation of something new, you must expect resistance, resistance in your own mind, being conflicted in your heart, having negative words spoken from the side, uh, breakdown of unity within your team, uh, you know, key backers bailing out on you, and then there's the outside attacks of other people rising up to push back. Why? Because of spiritual darkness. Everything we do in the kingdom of God is, a, is an act of, of war. We're going into the enemy's camp, and we are taking back the people that he has stolen from God. They're in bondage. Their minds are in bondage. Their hearts, their will is enslaved to the devil, and the Father sends us in with the power of the Holy Spirit and we make war, and we have to get used to that. And being in ministry is a wartime occupation, not a peacetime occupation. And we need to be geared up for war in our minds so that we're not, you know, when we get attacked, we don't get all shocked that we've been attacked. Well, of course, you're in a war. But, you know, these things are still disheartening. And, um, well, let's just look at our story today. In Acts chapter 19, it's a pretty good illustration about what we're talking about. The, uh, about midway in the book, we, st- we learn about a thing. That I'm just going to call it a great, the great commotion. And this story illustrates how much pressure Paul was under every day. Even though he was having an extremely successful season in Ephesus. Like when we look back at chapter 19, verse 19, we see the tremendous impact that Paul's ministry and the gospel has been having on these sincere Asian people. The scripture says in verse 19, they brought their magic books together and burned them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of God grew mightily and prevailed. Prevailed means you're in a battle and you win. The word of God grew mightily and it prevailed. 50,000 pieces of silver. Let's figure that one out. Well, a piece of silver was a day's wage. So that's 50,000 days wages. Let's just assume that in the modern world, a modest daily wage, at least in Western nations, would be $50, just to make the math easy. So we're talking about $25 million of occult scrolls just being burned, not sold because they're evil. They're just burned, 50,000 people giving their day's wage, $25 million of value being burned. And Paul is a change agent, and he has been carefully building an army of disciples who have leadership ability, and they have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and they have an experience, a personal experience with Jesus. This is not secondhand faith. These people found Christ, and He changed them, and they are there 
to be an agent of change, they're there to work for God and bring His influence and bring His Word into their family circle and their friendship circle. So, you know, Paul in the ministry, he, he came there with it. Nobody was there. He started this, and he has lit a fire in the hearts of people from Asia, and the blaze is beginning to spread from family to family. I've told you before in Thread uh, about our experience. Sherry and I, in the 1990s, planted a church. What I don't say much is that it was among upper-class people initially who had... Now, this group had been almost impossible to reach, but then God brought special circumstances to the Philippines, a huge crisis in the late 80s and 90s, and in the early 90s, many people among the upper classes became truly open to the gospel, along with millions of other Filipinos from all classes. And um, during those years, we were ministering, we were evangelizing, we were building a church, and I had a file in my cabinet called Love Notes, and this was just a personal joke because the file held hate mail that I received from families in which someone had become born again. Eventually, the hate mail turned to a lawsuit against the brother who was hosting our group in a house that he owned legally. And then I started having trouble from other ministers nearby because our church was growing fast, and, and this brother or that one, they were afraid it would somehow affect their group. And one of these ministers attempted to interfere with our group directly, and then he tried to make trouble for me with my overseer in the ministry. Then there were the troubles that were with people who were political. I don't mean they're, they're in church politics. I mean, they're really politicians. And in the Philippines, this can get scary uh, because politicians wield life and death power. So, you know, in Ephesus, here's Paul on the one hand having tremendous uh, results from preaching the gospel. On the other hand, he has developed a set of determined enemies, and these are thugs. These guys are within the local labor union of idol makers. That's what these guys do for a living. They make idols, and I live in Asia, and you can go even now to idol-making communities, and they're usually on the outskirts of a temple, and they make idols every day. You can watch them make them, and then they sell them to the people who carry them home and put them up and bow down in front of them and pray to them. And uh, this group rightly saw. They clearly understood what the Christian gospel was about, and they understood that those, Christ, those people who came to believe the gospel would not be buying any more idols or other items for good luck from them. Not only that, they could see the evangelistic zeal of Christians, and that meant that these people who had been idol worshipers would do everything within their power to turn their family members away from slavery to superstition and to the power of witchcraft. You know, Jesus came to set the captives free, and it was happening all around them. And, and these, these labor union guys knew that their business is going to be impacted if the Christian message spread any further, not only in their city but throughout their region. And so Demetrius, the silversmith, called for a meeting of the labor union, and the meeting was so large it had to be held in the stadium, which could seat 25,000 people. And listen to his logic in verse 25. Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. In other words, we make a lot of money 
making and selling idols. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods who are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana. So, you know, he's touching on their money, their pride as craftsmen, being shamed, he says, disrepute, and also the great temple right behind me now as I speak, our city's centerpiece, the goddess Diana. And with those words, a perfect storm started to form. Now, when you mix these three things, tradition-based religion, a labor union mentality, and mobs of ignorant people. When I say labor union mentality, I mean the mindset that is not even talking about truth or the issues or, or you know, meaning. It just says, we got to stick together. It's us against them, that kind of mindset. Tradition-based religion plus a labor union mentality, then you throw in mobs of ignorant people, and you have no idea what might happen. All over the world, throughout history, and today, Christians face mobs who are blind and deaf to all reason. These people are not thinking, they're not listening even to what the message is or what the issues are. They're not seeking for truth. Actually, in verse 32 of chapter 19, it says that most of the people in the shouting crowd did not even know why they were there. And today, the body of Christ is dealing with ISIS in the Middle East. Christians face machete-wielding mobs in much of Africa. You've got Hindu extremists in India. You've got Buddhist extremists in Sri Lanka. And God's people are burned to death, chopped to pieces, and beheaded by unthinking mobs. It's as though someone opened a hatch into hell and a million demons fly out and take possession, orchestrating the activities of this brainless crowd. And Paul is watching. He sees a wave of violence rising up from this thuggish labor union whose members have been shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, for hours. He feels responsible. Two of his team members, Gaius and Aristarchus, have been arrested, and there they are standing on the platform before this mob. And Paul wants to go in and make a speech to explain things before they kill his friends. But Messengers come from government officials who are among his friends, and they tell him to get away from the area, that he's just going to make things worse. And then another element pushes into this situation. You see, since Paul and most of his ministry team were Jewish, the local Jewish community senses danger that they may be included in this potential outbreak of mob bloodshed because they're not idol worshipers either. And so they put a spokesman named Alexander up on the platform to explain that although Paul is a Jew, they're not connected to him. But when the crowd realizes he's a Jew and not an idol worshiper, they won't even let the man speak. Finally, the mayor of the city steps up and takes control of the mob. Uh, some Bible translations call him the clerk, but it's that's a great, uh, in modern in modern terminology, a court clerk is nothing like what this man was. This was a man that stood between the city council and the Roman Empire. That was his role. He was big. And so I'm going to call him a mayor. 
uh, he just takes charge of this mob. And basically, in a legal sense, he sides with Paul, and he orders the labor union to pursue their complaints in a legal manner through the court system for which Rome is so famous. The crowd disperses, and Paul realizes he has to get out of there. He doesn't panic. This isn't his first conflict. Listen to this part, okay? Because Paul, this is really important for all of us. Paul has come to understand that the gospel creates conflict if we preach it clearly. And if people understand completely what the gospel demands of them in order to join with Christ. The gospel is the most offensive message possible. We've, we try to just make it sweet. And then, but there are these groups, and they see right through it, and they go, hold on, you're saying... I'm wrong. You're saying all these other religions are wrong. You're saying my point of view is wrong. And the gospel says, absolutely, now you're getting it. And you're saying I have to change my life. And you're saying God won't accept me just like I am. And I can't just keep on doing. And the gospel says, exactly. You have to repent. You have to die to yourself. You have to come on bended knees. You have to Humble yourself and lower yourself and yield everything about your life to get through the eye of the needle that is the narrow way into the kingdom. And Jesus said, very few people are actually going to find that. It's not my job to make the, you know, it's not my job to make the eye of the needle, like to go and do some demolition work and make it a nice, big, wide expressway that's so easy. Oh, just stay how you are. And no, 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 you don't really have to make all these big changes. And yeah, Jesus still lets you have your sin. And I had a guy one time, and after I'd done half an hour of counseling with him, got to the end, and he says, so can I keep my girlfriend in addition to his wife? And I just thought, the man didn't hear a word I said. The gospel, when it's understood, is always offensive. It will always create conflict if people understand completely what the gospel demands of them. But that's not our problem. It's not for us to lower and take that out because that's, that's the door. And if they can come through that door, see, seasoned leaders understand that conflict is a pregnant moment where people are given the opportunity to gain a new perspective. See, truth is pushing to get inside of a closed mind, and initially that mind resists it. But truth is powerful, and it's persistent, if God's messengers will not become silent because of the conflict. Everyone is not listening, but some people are earnestly seeking for truth. And so truth enters, and it finds its way into their hearts, and it sets them free. And Paul understood that conflict based on the gospel was an essential part of his ministry as a messenger of God. For two years, conflict has done a positive work. And now he's hit the limit of this city's willingness to change. And if he just keeps pushing, he's going to see an overflow of mob violence. And Jesus warned us against this. A situation where no one is listening at least among the group who's following this traditional religion that you are destabilizing, Paul needs to move on and let tensions dissipate. The disciples will continue to evangelize their friends and their family members. 
his work is accomplished, and he's free to move on to his next assignment in the Lord. So my friend, do not lose heart. If you are resisted when you're doing the work of the Lord, it's all part of spiritual leadership. God will make you tough, and He'll give you the grace you need to minimize conflict through humility and to quietly bear your afflictions, even as you continue to show up for work and do your ministry every week. So be encouraged today and preach that gospel. Let it do its perfect work in the hearts of your friends and family members. Hey, if you want to connect with me directly, just send me an email, chuck at quinley.com. I would love to hear your feedback. And if you do me a huge favor of thread ministers to you, would you go on iTunes, quinley.com slash iTunes, and would you um, give us a, a rating there so that people can uh, know about the thread podcast? We need these ratings for it to show up. Thanks again. Expect God to use you today. I'll see you next time on Thread.